I'm Courtney Bray. Something Positive for Positive People is a podcast featuring the experiences of individuals living with and affected by sexually transmitted infections. I am here with the director of Pornhub's Sexual Wellness Center, Dr. Lori Batito. Dr. Lori, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here, especially taking the time to meet with me in such a quick turnaround. Um, I'm no really problem. excited we were able to get this going. Dr. Laurie, how about you hit us with your credentials? All right. So I, uh, I have a PhD in uh, clinical psychology, and I have a certification in sex therapy. I've been practicing now for close to 30 years. I'm based out of Montreal, and in Montreal, I the last 20 years have had a nightly radio program on the big uh, talk station here in Montreal where I talk about sex. I've done about 5,000 episodes. I'm also the author of a book called The Sex Bible for People Over 50. And I work as a clinical uh, psychologist and sex therapist in a private office. I also do some Skype sessions. And uh, yeah, pretty busy. Yeah, and, I see. And the Pornhub stuff too. So. <laughs> and the Pornhub. We just throw that in at the end. And the Pornhub stuff too. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually found the wellness center. I wasn't looking for information at this point in time, but you know how you kind of get bored on uh, sure. certain categories. <laughs> You've done your thing yeah. Or like in the middle of you're like, oh, this has gotten old. I want to try something new. And you scrolling down and I saw sexual wellness center. I was like, wait a minute, what's that? And then the whole intention of being there changed. So I watched the video and I saw that you guys have a lot of amazing resources there regarding... STIs and sexual education. Yes, and we cover everything from uh, basic facts to STI education. Uh, every STI is covered. We also talk about relationships. We talk about uh, dating. We cover the whole range of issues related to sexuality and coupling, basically, and from LGBT to kinky sex to all kinds of stuff. I'm so glad to see that because in conversations on and off the podcast, porn sites themselves have gotten a pretty bad rep these days as far as being one of the sole sources of sex education and people believing that this is what sex looks like. Exactly. And I've noticed that especially because we're worldwide that uh, and I get questions from people from around the world and I can just tell from the nature of the questions how people just don't have some of the most basic information about sexuality. We're lucky in North America, we have a little more access, some places less than others, but because of that, we have a more balanced view, but there are plenty of places that the only access they have is through pornography. Wow, I never thought about it that way. There are a few posts that I see repetitively from a few people who are heavily involved in sex education who talk about the American sexual education system as a whole just not being up to par, how it focuses more on prevention and condom use rather than scare tactics. Scare tactics, scare yes. Tactics. So many things aren't covered in regular sex education, which it should be. Uh, things like consent and uh, how to communicate STI status, for example, how to ask somebody their STI status, or how to negotiate condom use. Like all of this stuff, which is all about communicating this information, isn't there. We're just told this is what happens when you have unprotected sex. These are the pictures of the ugly diseases that you'll get. 
or you'll get pregnant. And uh, so don't do it, right? Yep. But that's not enough to, to, to deter people. And unfortunately, we must be going about it the wrong way in terms of condom use because only about a quarter of people used condoms the last time they had intercourse. So we're not doing something right, which is making condom use appealing to people in general. And like, we need to destigmatize the use of condoms. If everybody just did it and, and there was no uh, attachment to some negative connotation to using condoms, like, oh, it doesn't feel as good or what have you, then we might have a whole lot less sexually transmitted infections. I agree. Do you believe that our method of sex education being so fear-driven and using the scare tactics is kind of contributing to STI diagnosis? I think what happens is that if you think about it, a lot of people get their sex education or should get it in high school, right? And high school is where these tactics are given because people want to stop kids from having sex, let's say. But if you understand the teenage brain, the teenage brain uh, they think that they're invincible. Like they haven't developed, the prefrontal cortex hasn't yet fully developed, not until age 24, 25. So they feel invincible. They feel that it can't happen to them. Uh, and that's why teenagers take more risks, right? In general, that's what happened. So those scare tactics don't seem to work for that reason. We're much better off giving them good reasons for and uh, getting them to think more critically for themselves rather than simply using the scare tactics of here are pictures and this is what you need to do and that's it it's it's just not enough so what does that look like what does uh giving them incentive to use condoms look like uh making Teenagers feel like they're in control, so in control of, of their own lives, getting them to take ownership of their bodies is really important, and reducing risks by looking at or getting them to think, okay, well, what will happen if, and what, will, what would you do then? And I had a conversation once with a 13-year-old, and we were talking about sex and safe sex, and I was saying, um, okay, like, you have, you, know, you have to use a condom. And I said, well, if he asked me, if you don't use a condom, what can happen? So then I go on to talk first about pregnancy. And I said, so what would happen? I, I wanted him to think about it. So what would happen if the girl, let's say you're 14 or 15 and you're having sex and the girl gets pregnant and she's 14 or 15. And his answer immediately was, well, she'll have an abortion. I said, well, what if she doesn't want to have an abortion? What if she chooses to have the baby? Guess what? You're now a daddy at 15 years old. Uh, and I use real case examples of this because there are plenty. So you're a daddy at, at the age of 15 and you did not have a choice. The only choice you had was to use a condom. So when do you take control of yourself? So you have to kind of give them scenarios, but ask them what they think could happen. I agree with that. I'm finding myself being exposed more to a lot of sex positive people, parents. There's actually a podcast called Sex Positive Families with uh, Melissa Pintor, who I've had on the show recently as well. And she uses this example about consent where a child early on is taught 
that their body is not theirs. And she used this tickling analogy of an older sibling tickling a younger sibling where like their body is, you know, enjoying it because they're laughing. Yet the person who's doing the tickling is hearing no stop, but they're not stopping. And so early on, the tickler is taught no doesn't mean no. And the person being tickled is also being taught, you know, no doesn't mean no. This being played out in a much later uh, life scenario, be it sex. Absolutely. No, no, it's a very good example how we start teaching consent to very young children. So I had a scenario in my own backyard just the other week where I have two nephews and one nephew throws a ball at his brother, hits him in the head and says, oh, I was just playing. I said, well, your brother did not consent to playing this game. If you had hit him in the head after he says, throw it to me, it's one thing. Throwing it in the head and say, hey, look out. He did not consent to having that ball thrown to him. So he didn't consent to the play. Then he got hit in the head, and then he was very upset. If he had gotten hit in the head after he consented to it, he's taking ownership of the fact that he agreed to play. So to me, that shows the same thing. The play in the bedroom kind of works the same way. That's a very good point, and I don't think we're taught this at all. I played football in college and high school, and there was a lot of stuff in the media about different sexual assault cases and even at my school there were situations where some of the teammates had gotten into some issues where there were sexual assault accusations and one of the things that I noticed was that I don't think we ever had a talk about this is what consent is. Back then we just assumed no didn't mean no like no means yes girls played hard to get like we were all raised that way girls play hard to get you just have to convince them and men also are in charge of sexuality not women like all kinds of things that we've been taught through the years, but we know that that's not healthy and we are changing this now. And so consent has to be a part of every sexual uh, education curriculum. It just has to be because just Me Too movement in and of itself has done great work to bring that out in the open, the whole idea of consent. And we need to focus on boys' education and we need to teach girls to say yes affirmatively or no, for like yes enthusiastically or an absolute no. So, um, you know, I often tell my students when I uh, talk with them that convincing somebody, because often somebody will say, well, they said yes. I said, well, how did you get to the yes? Well, I asked them and I asked them and I asked them. And then I, I said, well, if you love me, you'll do this. And, oh, we've been dating for a month now. When are we going to have sex? And so they, they persist and they persist and they persist until they obtain the yes. But that isn't consent. You cannot get consent through coercion or even subtle coercion. It, it, submission is not the same as consent. Submitting to a yes is not the same as an enthusiastic consent that the partner says you want to have sex and you go, oh, yeah, let's do it. That's enthusiastic consent. When is it appropriate to bring up consent? Obviously, sometime before a sexual encounter, when people are not under the influence, when we're perfectly right. sober and able to have this conversation. Now, I feel like there isn't a quote unquote smooth way to have that kind of a conversation because you can completely ruin the mood, right? Right. But you also have to learn how to read signals. 
you have to learn how to read the signals of your partner. Somebody who pushes you away or um, uh, seems like they're not happy in their facial expression or what have you, it's up to the guy to, or the partner to be able to say, is this okay? Um, are, you, are you good with this? Simply saying, are you good with this? And if they hesitate, then you say, you know what? I'm not so sure you're good with this. So okay. why don't we hold off a little bit? So, yes, maybe? It's different than it yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And remember that the problem today is, and men are being more and more careful because they can get accused of sexual assault if they persist or they push or they did not obtain that consent. Mm-hmm. So right now, women are more likely to speak out because they've been empowered by the Me Too movement, which is a good thing. Um, so men have to be more careful about obtaining that consent. It's not just about ruining the mood. The mood for who? It'll ruin the mood for her if you can persist and she's not into it. Yeah. Right? Are we able to confidently say that this does, in fact, start with the men or is it more appropriate to say that it starts with the initiator let's say it starts with the initiator because women can be aggressive too so before initiating or if you do initiate get either read the signals or or just ask is this okay like don't be afraid if if we get more and more people saying is this okay i think people will appreciate that a whole lot more okay Let's speak from uh, like a male perspective here. Yeah. So I have found dirty magazines, dirty videos, quote unquote, dirty. And what I mean by dirty is like the the porn stuff, the stuff Mm -hmm. that was considered dirty. And this is by the people who had it. Like my parents had these videos and magazines and they would call it dirty and say, stay out of my stuff like that. That's the dirty magazines or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this is how I grew up. And this was my first exposure to sex. I remember the very first porno that I've seen was a guy with three women and that kind of set the bar for what sex was supposed to be for me so going out yeah right (laughs) so at 16 years old was uh when i lost my virginity taking what i learned from porn and applying it to the real world i had completely different expectations and the reason that i'm bringing that up here is just kind of to bring back full circle of like how we don't really understand consent because it's not necessarily a conversation that was had in any of the uh, porno movies that I watched as no, a child. That's right. Right. Women in porn are always ready, willing, and able, as are men. Men get a lot of false expectations, too, about the way they should perform. So, uh, yeah, you're not going to learn that stuff in, in porn. I guess we need to redirect our upcoming generations because now information is everywhere. The porn, the sex stuff is all so appealing. Like it's right there. It's literally a web browser search away. But the sexual education stuff is boring and it takes a while and no one's going to look for that. So as like a teenage raging hormone kid, like I'm looking at porn and the first opportunity that I get to have some form of sex, like that's what I'm going into. How does our education from porn play into the real world? Well, in my practice as a sex therapist, I certainly see uh, a lot of impact. So I see a lot of performance anxiety in men, like men who think they should last a whole lot longer or have bigger penises or 
uh, how come my girlfriend isn't moaning and groaning and exploding on me? Like, so all these things that they're confused about because that's what they see in porn. So they become pretty anxious about, uh, about sexuality. Women, too, feel like they should behave a certain way. Like, so many women come to me because they think they're not having orgasms. But they actually are. When I break down with them in terms of what's happening in their bodies, they are. But what they're not having is what the porn shows like they're having orgasms, right? Like an explosion, like uh, so powerful that the earth shakes, uh, which isn't realistic. So, again, this is, it's all because of a lack of, of education that would balance what they're learning there. So if women are thinking, how come I don't respond? How come all the women in porn really get off on intercourse? Well, they don't know that 75% of women don't get off on intercourse. 75% of women absolutely need clitoral stimulation. So they need the foreplay. They need all of that. But yet women question themselves, but they don't know this because they don't talk about this. So what they see in porn is what they think is the reality. And they come into my office very confused or at least upset thinking they have a problem. They will tell me I have an orgasm problem. And when I check with them and they tell me that they orgasm through masturbation perfectly fine, that they orgasm through oral sex perfectly fine, but they don't through intercourse, that means they have a problem. But that isn't a problem. That's the norm. Got it. I find it really interesting that Oh, I listened to your TED talk. Uh, one of them uh, in particular brought up the fact that women have an organ strictly for pleasure. Right. Like they have this one body part that is strictly designed for pleasure, the clitoris. Right. And our sex education doesn't even touch on this. And it's in the genital region. Why is it that we're not talking about these pleasurable things, but we can talk about all of the like you can get pregnant, you can get an STI. Because imagine talking about pleasure to teenage kids. I mean, what, what's the reason we have sex anyway? It's because it feels good. We're not, we're not doing it for procreation at that age. And I think a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, a lot of, pe- a lot of adults are very uncomfortable uh, talking about pleasure. We've grown up in a, in a society for years, decades, where sex, is, sex outside of marriage is sin. Sex is sin. So, and suddenly after marriage, it's not in anymore. It's supposed to be pleasurable. How do you go from sin to pleasure without anything in between, without being taught anything in between? So if we teach people about their bodies, or we even teach them how to self-pleasure, like, this is okay. Self-pleasure is good. Like, you, it's your body. Do what you want with it. Um, as long as it's safe and, and, and you're not hurting anyone and you're not hurting yourself. That's, and little kids do masturbate. The problem is parents will come in if they catch a, a little kid masturbating, which, of course, they have no sexual connotation to it. It's just a body feel good, right? Um, they'll go in and say, don't touch yourself, or what are you doing, or that's dirty. And so right away, the message of sex as dirty or pleasure as dirty uh, gets ingrained in our brains. And so we tend to avoid all that pleasure talk, which we shouldn't. Every sex education program should include uh, talk about pleasure. I, I just can't see how you don't talk about it. Yeah, and I understand that. I was on a blog recently, and I came across a post that was a father who 
um, he, I guess he was a single father and he caught his daughter masturbating with like a hairbrush or something like that. And he walked in and he didn't know what to do. What he did was he like had a conversation with her and just bought her a vibrator and he didn't know what to say. He's not a woman, but that was the best he could do. And he got a lot of praise for it. But I want to ask you, is that a more appropriate approach than don't do that. You're shaming or that's a shame. Absolutely. Talking to your kids. And I, I applaud this father for being able to have the conversation. Uh, and if this child could self-pleasure, she may not need to go out and, and, and have sex so soon, right? If she can learn uh, her body and can give herself the same, uh, the same pleasures. So obviously I wouldn't give a vibrator uh, to a 12-year-old, but um, you can talk about clitoral stimulation. You can talk to little, little kids when they discover their genitals and you're talking about their vulvas, you start, you use the word, just use the word clitoris. It's part of the body. It's just like your elbow or your nose or your eyelids. So if we start using the terminology and we teach kids who will often be very curious, oh, when I touch myself there or my clitoris, it feels good, it's tingly. And, and the answer, proper answer would be, yes, it's meant to feel good. And you can touch yourself there, it's your body, but this is something people do in private. So this is where you teach boundaries. So you teach them, yes, this is your body. You control your body, but it's private. That's where the conversation can be had, starting at a, at a very, very young age. You can be a father talking to his daughter who doesn't necessarily know full, the full extent of female anatomy in order to get them going in the right direction. You don't need to own it to know it. You, you just need to know uh, about pleasure, and you need to know about female pleasure. So a man should know what the clitoris is. If he doesn't, he's in trouble because most women need clitoral stimulation. So you better know how to find it. And it's not just finding it. See, I think there's a misconception about the clitoris. Like it's a tiny little button that uh, you can find with your finger or your tongue. But the clitoris is a large structure that... Uh, it looks like a wishbone. It looks like a wishbone. It has a shaft. It has legs. It has bulbs. Let's remember that we are all in utero, first female. And then the clitoris grows into the penis. The bulbs become testicles. Like we become boys. We start off as girls. What? Okay, that's new. Yeah. That That's new to me. <laughs> That is the first yeah. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've always thought like a big clitoris looked like a, a penis head. But yeah, I never... it's a mini, uh, yes, absolutely. Well, the proof is if you give uh, a woman who's transforming to become a man uh, testosterone, so male hormones, their clitoris will grow and grow to become sometimes a, like looks like a little micro penis. No way. So, yeah, there's proof, right? The testosterone creates this part of it just like in the uterus once the sex hormones get going and the testosterone like all the things that you need to make a boy yeah i'm learning so much just talking to you right here <laughs> what do you specifically do um as a director of pornhub sexual wellness center well for me my role is to manage the writers so i decide on content on the kinds of stuff that goes up. I get all the uh, questions asked of me. So I, through those questions, I get to figure out what are the topics that need to be covered, what hasn't been covered. I personally answer the questions on the site as well. I also write 
uh, for the site and we're looking to expand so that soon we'll go live, like we'll do a live uh, Q&A with me. Uh, so that's in the work. It's a continuously evolving site. Pornhub, for me, it was really important to reach the people I wanted to get to. And the people I wanted were the, the porn viewers who, so I could give them a balanced look at sex. So when that site was created, it was created for Pornhub users. And that's the most important piece is that we created that site for the users of Pornhub, of which there are, I don't know, 70 million in a year, something like that. Uh, so we wanted to get some of those people to be able to reach an audience that wouldn't necessarily have other access uh, to good uh, sexual health education. So our site is all written by uh, doctors and uh, professionals in the field of sexuality, or we have dating experts, or we have LGBT experts. Or, so we have, it, it's all a, a bunch of experts rather than writers who, who simply write about a topic. So get it straight from the expert's mouth and that's what we try to do we keep and we update it every single week so every week we have new blog posts every week new topics come up and every week i answer questions for for our list for our, uh, our viewers you're so busy <laughs> yeah a little bit not to mention my radio show at that's night and i have lots <laughs> of stuff on my plate oh <laughs> uh, all right so you mentioned that you um you provide information about scis one of the things that I talk about a lot on the podcast, I speak to a lot of individuals who are living with herpes who really feel like they're the only person who has herpes. How common is herpes? Uh, I don't have the exact number, but it's quite, quite common. Uh, other STIs are more common, like HPV is like in 70% of the population. Um, but herpes is, is one of those that are, that's very, very common. There are medications to control outbreaks. There are medications to control transmission. We're in a, a good place now where it is, although not curable, certainly treatable. I just hate the word, you know, if it's incurable, that it sounds like a death sentence, which it is not. Uh, there are plenty of people walking around with herpes with no impact or very little impact on their sexuality. But you need to live with any STI that you have that is always there, like herpes or HPV, but we don't even know we have it half the time or uh, HIV, for example, is to be responsible about it. I have found that most people have no issue dating or having sex with someone with herpes if they are told up front and if measures are used and they are educated about it. The people who have any illness or any STI or anything like that is responsible for teaching others. I think you become the ambassador for that. So when they meet somebody who says, oh, you have herpes, oh, well, I would never know it. Like, that's, that's right, you wouldn't know it because I only have an outbreak once in a blue moon and I know where my outbreaks come from or I know how they're triggered, I know how to treat it, or I'm on a, a medication to keep outbreaks at bay and keep the viral load down. So you educate people. Mm -hmm. And once you're armed with that education, you can have perfectly healthy, normal, whatever, whatever normal is, but relationships, it's, it is not the death knell of a relationship. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm so glad that you said that we as people who are living with an STI become the ambassadors for it. And we're responsible for letting people know, hey, this is how I manage it. I am now responsible for learning my body to the point where I know if an outbreak is coming on. I know when the risk is higher because there's no 100% surefire way to prevent the spread of herpes in particular. But you have to just know your body and be sure to understand the risks. So in your practice, have you spoken to people who are living with STIs? Oh, yeah. I get people who come to me who come devastated because they've just discovered that they have herpes. So confronting, why are they devastated? It's a lot of unknowns for people, right? Again, lack of education. All they remember of the scare type is, oh my God, I got herpes. Without realizing, okay, well, what is herpes? And what is this virus? And how common is this virus? And how do you transmit this virus? And how do you protect others from this virus? And how do you protect yourself? They're not armed with all that information, except the shame of, oh my goodness, I caught an STI. I don't even know the number, but it's huge of the people who have contracted some STI. That's yeah. the reality, whether it's gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, any of those. So, And in the throat as well as in, in the genitals. So some STIs, like herpes, those are the ones you would need to tell a partner about. If you've had chlamydia in the past and it's been treated, you don't have to tell your partner about chlamydia. You don't have to tell your partner about anything you're not going to transmit to them, but you still need to know the risks of transmission. However low they are, they're very low for people who are uh, treated with the antiviral medication, whether it's herpes or whether it's uh, like HIV, for example. So there are things you can do for prevention that really work in this day and age. Mm -hmm. So getting past that, and also when I see someone who feels a lot of shame, I go back to their roots, I go back to their childhood, and it inevitably is very sex-negative upbringing. Uh, Sex as sin, sex is dirty. Well, what's the dirtiest part of sex? Herpes, you know, like that's how they think. It's like, oh, now I know it's dirty because look what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm being punished or God's punishing me for something. Or I hear all of those things. Yeah. Uh, And and that date to me, that dates back to sex-negative upbringing. And that, in, as a therapist, is my role to start changing people's view of, of sexuality little by little, but confronting what they grew up with as well. That's not the gospel. That's not the truth. There are many truths, and that's your parents' truths, right? That was what they uh, kind of put on to you. So mm-hmm. learning about the realities is very, very important. Yeah. And I'm in no way, shape or form licensed uh, a therapist or herpes expert. Like I'm only sharing the experiences of others who have come on the podcast, who have openly communicated their experience with me. It's always exciting when I'm able to have an actual professional on here who can talk through Uh some of this stuff. So what I want to ask you is, what kind of therapist should someone go to? You know, if they're now newly diagnosed with herpes, for example, and feeling the shame, I'm never going to have sex again, I feel dirty, and this is impacting their lives. It's not just impacting them sexually. I'm finding that it plays out in other areas of life as well. Well, it'll play out in uh, relationships and seeking out relationships. and, And it's a lot of fears. It creates a lot of anxieties around exposing oneself, right? Because 
you, you're vulnerable. When you tell somebody, I have herpes, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position. First of all, you want to make sure that the person you're telling is not going to blab it throughout the network. Like, it's like, hey, I met this girl on Tinder. Don't go with her because I found out she's got you know herpes. You may want to establish a trusting relationship before you have sex so that you can at least feel out what this the potential of this relationship and actually I think it could do a lot of good because it might slow down that process and increase intimacy before sex a lot of people have sex before they ever get to a level of intimacy I much prefer getting to a level of intimacy before you have sex and when you get to that point your partner is more and more aware of your uh, vulnerabilities or your anxieties or whatever it is but you are also sharing because you start to trust that person so it could be a blessing in disguise in one way right it's, yeah. it's how do you look at it uh what do you have versus what you don't have and working with it rather than avoiding or shoving it under the rug and and just avoiding life or avoiding relationships altogether. Yeah. So for me, it's as a therapist, it's the ability to give somebody a different perspective. I'm on the outside looking in. This is a different reality for you to look at. Mm-hmm. These are other ways for you to turn this around. Let's see how else we can see this. Let's see how you can communicate with this. And if a person gets involved with somebody and shares this information, the person says, uh, 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 no, not for me. Well, then you know that person isn't right for you anyhow, because they're not open to learning. They're not, they only see you as an SDI and that's all wrong. So it's the wrong person anyway, because they probably would have just been interested in the sex anyhow. And this is coming from a professional. (laughs) Yeah. So to me, this is a good filter. Yes. It's like you can filter through that. Mm-hmm. So that's the plus side of uh, of living with, with herpes. You can use it to your advantage at that point. Yes. And I love that you said that because it's something that a lot of the people who have had it for a while in hindsight are able to give that practical advice and say, through my experience, this is what I've learned. And you completely have a mindset shift that allows you to look at, okay, well, you know, what do I have here with herpes? It's really been helpful in being a good screening mechanism. I've developed much deeper relationships with people around me through disclosing that information. And like they've also pointed out to me that when I was quiet about it and didn't want anyone to know, I acted a certain way. And going back to it playing out in different areas of your life, like you said, relationships, the way that I was about herpes is how I was in my relationship. Like I was small and sheltered and like I would, I just wasn't freely expressive until I got around people who knew. And then when I started just slowly but surely letting people know, I began to like myself more. I want other people to have that feeling too. And unfortunately, it took a very long time for me to even become aware of it. So how can we skip the steps of being diagnosed and then going through a whole lot of unfortunate negative experiences and then having the awareness that this is something that plays out everywhere. Well, I think reaching out, as you did, like reaching out to a community, reaching out to listening to podcasts like yours, for example, hearing the voices of others and feeling like you're not alone. 
is really key. There are, I mean, again, millions, millions, millions of people living with herpes, and you're certainly not alone, but you might feel alone because mm -hmm. you, you're you not sharing. But I'm sure if you shared in a group of guy friends, you'd have another couple pop up and say, oh, me too. I'm sure you've heard that many times yes. before. Just destigmatizing it means also talking about it. It's just being able to talk about it. The thing about herpes is it's a skin-to-skin -skin STI. So it's really hard to prevent catching it. If you know your body and you know when the breakouts are, you should be avoiding sex, period. But because it's a skin-to-skin, -skin, any play below the belt, like HPV also, uh, any play below the belt, you don't have to have intercourse, you don't have to have full-on sex to get it. So it's a really tough one to completely protect yourself from. So you might get it. So you might as well learn to have, call it safer sex. Oh. Only abstinence is completely safe sex. Abstinence from any genital contact, which is not realistic. So having safer sex and if something happens, you did everything you could, but it happened. So now what? Now you deal with it, and there are ways to deal with it, and there are plenty of other people who have learned to live with it. And you need to hear from people who have relationships where it doesn't matter. It's, not, it's a non-issue for the partner. It's a non-issue. And for the most part, that's my experience. I've seen this, is that for the partners, it really is a non-issue. A lot of people, after diagnosis, immediately go into, oh my God, I'm going to be alone, and try and jump into finding someone. Immediately finding someone uh, to be with, to accept their condition. And I'm guilty of this as well. But so closely tying yourself to your sexuality that you think that this is the only thing that you had to offer to someone. And so you're on the hunt for someone who's just going to accept you. Like, it doesn't matter if you have different political, religious beliefs, right. different lifestyles, don't want the same thing. You're just like, he likes me even though I have herpes. As if that's the defining thing that you are. So you can't allow any type of diagnosis to define who you are. Otherwise, you become the victim to that diagnosis. You don't want to be the victim. You want to, you want to drive that bus. You want to be able to... Uh, to control it as much as you can and to live with it in a very positive uh, way. But if you feel like a victim to it, then all the decisions you make will be based on your victimology, right? Can you say that one more time? All the decisions that you make are going to be based on your victimology. Yeah. In, in other words, you're, because you feel like a victim, you're going to make choices that you're not really totally in control of. Like you said, I'll just take somebody who likes me. Not yeah. that I like them, but they like me. There's your control because it's the poor me, I've got this, so uh, I, I'll just take whoever accepts it and that's good enough for me, but that doesn't put you in the driver's seat of your life. Mm hmm. I love the way that you worded that. Yes, because I can completely agree. I can completely relate. Like the decision making process has been way more empowering for me personally since overcoming that thing, because I've avoided it for five, six years. It's been it's about seven years. I've had herpes for seven years. And I know for the first five to six, I had that victimology mindset in my decision making. And it wasn't just in 
sexual partners and relationships. It was, oh, uh, my friends want to go out tonight. Oh, I don't want to go out. I'm probably going to. Uh, I don't want to have to have this conversation because it's not like, I mean, going out and socializing and everything, a lot of interactions get to a certain point. And I feel like I was being teased after my diagnosis. Women were everywhere. And it was just like, oh, nope, don't touch. Yeah. Well, Courtney, what you're saying, really, if if I'm hearing you, is that you're telling yourself a certain story. And the story we create in our mind is what we live by, right? So if my story is... Oh my God, poor me. Look at me. Nobody's ever going to love me. I don't want to be teased and I'm not going to ever go out again because it's like chocolate cake and I can't eat it or what's the point. So you're telling yourself and you're repeating this story over and over and over and over again till it becomes you. It becomes who you are. And so therapy helps you to find another story. To mm-hmm. write another story for yourself where it's, yes, okay, so I have herpes, but here's what I know about it, and it's not the end of the world, and, and lots of people live with it, and I will live with it, and I will be in control of it, and I will only go out with someone who appreciates me for everything I am, including the herpes. So you're changing the story of how you perceive yourself. and. That story that I just told is not a victim. Your story was that of the victim. Mm -hmm. So, being able to do that, and people often say, "Well, okay, how do I, you know, how do I change a story?" Repetition, repetition. Just like this story you told yourself lasted six years or however many years, you have to start changing that story. Get up every day and tell yourself a different story. Repeat that story to yourself ten times a day if you have to. Catch yourself when the old story is told in your head. We have more control over what happens in our brains and our thoughts than we think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. And then because those thoughts, whether we control them or not, directly impact our behavior. Don't you agree? Of course. Well, a hundred percent. Like your behaviors are a direct result of your thoughts. There's no question about it. But research has shown us that we could kind of rewire our brain yeah. through a different a different story. Yes. So we can get used to seeing ourselves a whole different way if we change the thoughts. So those thoughts need to be identified and need to be changed. Mm-hmm. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, this seems like a really good place for us to wrap up. Okay. What I would like from you is just, do you have about 20 more minutes and we can just kind of give people an idea of what reaching out to a therapist may look like. So we can do kind of a role play scenario where I share my story with you. Sure. I'm coming to you as a newly diagnosed person and we kind of work through in a short fashion style session of what therapy would look like for someone who's newly diagnosed with an STI. Yeah, we'll certainly practice. Okay, let's see what happens. I mean, I can edit this out if it doesn't go over well, so it doesn't matter. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People with Dr. Lori Petito, the director of the Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center. Dr. Lori, I thank you so, so, so much for your time, and we'll just direct people to the Pornhub (laughs) Sexual Wellness Center. Because I've been looking for a place to direct people for additional resources. I mean, there's the CDC, and there's just a lot of different statistics and information out there that aren't necessarily consistent and i think that for just about anybody in 2018 if you say yeah go to pornhub sexual education center for information i think that that's more of a yes (laughs) yeah 
All right. So please follow, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, Something Positive for Positive People. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Reddit at HRMyChest. Dr. Laurie can be found on Instagram at Dr. Laurie Batito. And yeah. your website is? DrLaurie.com. So it's D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Till next time, stay positive.